This is the Mark Milton Show with a Smash with former Department of Justice Tax Division trial attorney Mark Milton and the Smash on 590 The Fan and 590TheFan.com. I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. Wearing my six shooter, riding my pony on a cat and drive. All right, welcome to the Mark Milton Show with the Smash. Broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios here in Kirkwood and presented by stltaxlawyer.com. Remember, the choice of a lawyer is an important decision. should not be based solely on advertisements. Smash, how you doing today? See, Tom, how loud he talks, man. That's why he got the headphones on. Imagine how much louder it would be. I'm starting to figure this out, Smash. <laughs> so that is, I'm cool, man. That is our guest this week, Tom O'Toole, <laughs> uh, legendary Tom O'Toole, former USGA president. Founding partner of the law firm here in St. Louis, Mikas O'Toole. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Mark, thank you for having me. Smash, good to see you guys. Nice to see you, sir. Yes, uh, this is, on a beautiful yeah. Thursday morning. Yeah, beautiful Thursday morning. This is uh, US, U.S. Open weekend here, uh, which is very exciting, I'm sure, for you, but also probably bittersweet that you're not able to be there this weekend. Um, I know you've been a, a rules official for every U.S. Open since when, 1990? 1990 is is right. I haven't. Uh, I was in a different role the last few years when uh, Fox was the broadcast partner with USJ. I was doing broadcasting for Fox, but since they sold uh, back to NBC, my broadcast career came to an abrupt halt. So uh, was a rule in a rules capacity from 90 until about 16, and then did broadcasting from there. But this year, I'm on the sidelines here in St. Louis, and glad to be with you guys. Well, I tell you what, man, I was studying up on your time. And I see you doing the rules official thing and all that. But I asked myself in that research, can you play the game? <laughs> well, listen, Smash, it's a, <laughs> it's a often asked question and one that I've led a lot of uh, explanations about my career and how I got involved in golf and, of course, started as a caddy. But there's a very important part of this this. Uh, cross in the road that yeah. I came to, which is I never played the game at the level that I would have liked. I played pretty good. You know, I was probably a two or three handicap at my best, maybe slightly lower. Nice. That's nothing to sneeze but at. But yeah. I never played at the competitive level that I would have liked, so I gravitated toward the administrative side of the game. So there was a method to the madness, which I'm probably that's part of the that I'm not that proud of. Well, talk mm-hmm. about your, you know, history with the game of golf. So you started playing as a kid and, and then – yeah, my parents exposed me to the game, uh, mostly my mom. God rest my dad's soul. My mom's still with us, but my mom likes to take credit. And you know, my dad was a highly accomplished athlete in college and high school, signed a pro baseball contract at 17, but he didn't play golf that well and so didn't play it that frequently. And plus he was working hard and trying to provide for our family. So my mom was the one who really pushed me to the game, started at five or six and, uh, and, and played it uh, through most of my youth. I had a little uh, um, hiatus that I took and played a lot of tennis. Actually played high school tennis at St. Louis U High. Then went back to golf at St. Louis University and played on the team there. So started at a young age, did a lot of caddy, and got connected with Jim Holtgrieve. And most of your listeners know the rest of that story. But that's the that's the real causal connection between how I catapulted a career or life in the administrative end of the game was really my experience in uh connection with Jim Holtgrieve and how he paved the way for that. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, I've, I've seen you describe him as uh, an older brother that you never had figure, and you caddied for him during his uh, amateur run. And I want to talk about what that means, because I think some people, you know, when you look back, you don't hear much about amateur golf in terms of, you know, older people playing amateur golf. And, and Jim was the U.S. Amateur Open champion, uh, went on to be the Walker Cup uh, a captain. So talk about your relationship with Jim, how that evolved over the years. Well, um, I, I might have said he was an older brother I I never had. I might also reference him as one of the great pains in the, you know, what. And, <laughs> but, no, Jim, uh, I happen, you know, a lot happens in life based on where you are at a particular time, right? right. Uh, and, and look, I can, I can stand from the mountaintops and say that I had a great impact on Jim Holtgrieve's game, and it was me and my caddying capabilities and psychic and, and mental turpitude and connection with the game that, advanced him on to international success in amateur golf, but that's not really the case. But I was there when it happened. And so that that's where the stars lined up for me. 
And I literally started his rise when he won his first St. Louis district championship in 1977 through a rise in amateur golf that really, I think uh, some of your listeners might take umbrage, but I don't think so. I I think probably the most accomplished amateur golfer ever to come from St. Louis. And I was right in the middle of it. And uh, so that's, that, that was a good fortune that I had grew up at Westboro country club. Jim's about 10 or 11 years older than me. Uh, but I knew him uh, when I was younger and, and then had a chance to caddy for him. I actually had been spending most of my time caddying for a guy named Mick Wellington, who was a good friend and Westboro member, and Johnny Moore, who's been a longtime life friend of mine. and uh, Great people. Yeah, insurance broker at Lockton, was caddying for Jim. And then Johnny's game elevated to the point where maybe he was going to compete. Mine wasn't there yet, as I indicated. And so I, um, I got the bag from Johnny. And uh, then it just happened to be there when all the success started in 77 and ran it out to next thing you know, I'm caddying in the U.S. Open and the Masters. And nice. um, it's, uh, it was a, it was a nice. treasured ride. And, and it was really, it was Jim's relationship, amateur golf, I think, for your listeners' benefit, and you guys know, is really administered and overseen by the USGA. And so that's really the connection that he had a very close connection with them. And when I got out of law school, I actually ran for political office. As I think you know, I told you, Mark, I wanted to be in politics. That was the only reason I went into uh, and went to law school. We're both failed state rep candidates. <laughs> yeah, right. You and I are in a, in a fraternity of failed <laughs> yeah. failed politicians. You wanted to be a politician. That's why you went to law school. <laughs> Which I tell yeah. people was the best thing that ever happened to me. Running and losing was probably yeah. well, better. Your, your really. career definitely was catapulted in a different direction. Uh, maybe that crazy law firm that uh, – made a hiccup in downtown St. Louis also <laughs> catapulted you into a, helped but you know, I had, uh, you know, uh, George Peach hired me in the circuit attorney's office huh. said, if you pass the bar exam, you got the job. I passed the bar exam. He said, we got to come down there. I can't hire you because you, you know, the Webby family. So I was out in the circuit <laughs> attorney's office and next thing you know, looking for a job. But, uh, you know, candidly, the, the connection with Jim and the USGA is what got me, um, uh, after my failed state rep to get on a USGA committee. And then of course I had pretty uh, recently taken two states bar exams. So uh, whatever my academic level was, it, it could have always been better. It certainly was at a peak at that time because I had gone through two state bar exams successfully. So I took the rules exam, scored high in that. Next thing you know, they're inviting me to the U S open. So that's really how it started. And then, you know, the golf association that I started uh, a few years later was kind of an offspring of that. And um, I, 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 let me make one thing perfectly clear. There was no roadmap for this. Sure. I didn't sit down and say, aha, this is where I'm going. Uh, I kind of picked it up as I went and uh, I made a lot of ill-fated decisions along the way. Uh, but here I am. Yeah, I think everything happens for a reason, right? And yeah, I think absolutely. I'm sure you get asked a lot, how do I become the president of the USGA? And that's obviously, I mean, that's almost like saying, how do I become president? There's just no you know, there's no formula for it. And I think you put in a lot of work as a volunteer. I mean, that was all volunteer time that you spent going back to the eighties, right. As a, as a rules official and, and serving on those committees and even serving as president's a volunteer position. That's right. That's right. And I, yeah, I don't, uh, again, there's a lot of people smarter than me and a lot of people got to that position a different way or a different path. But, um, you know, I did, if there's one thing I did do is put in the time, and uh, so, uh, but was lucky to get to the final seat and, uh, you know, probably shouldn't have gotten the opportunity to do it, um, the way things work out in life. But I was fortunate and, uh, you know, it was a privilege of a lifetime. How, how difficult is like the rules exam? I mean, as a, as a casual golfer, I mean, I'm yeah. like a, I'm like an 18 handicap and we can talk about the 21 jump street. I was accused of being a sandbagger in a recent, <laughs> recent, uh, I've heard radio, that, <laughs> radio I've heard show, that. Man, uh, because I was a 21 going in and I shot. <laughs> Shot a asterisk 79 at Gateway in the opening round, which we can talk about. But, I mean, as far as rules go. Um, you were no, so braggadocious <laughs> about your game. And yeah, you I did played that. out of my mind. I played out of my mind. But I'm saying, I mean, everyone knows the basics. But where does the real rubber meet the road in terms yeah, of where the, the. The rules exam historically with USGA, uh, it, it was very, very difficult. I, I was frequently quoted to say that it was as hard as any bar exam I took. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, multiple choice exam, two parts, uh, closed book, open book, 50 questions on the open book, closed book, 
fifty on the on the open, and uh, and it, and there's a time constraint to it. And so, like the bar exam, you know, they teach you how to budget time. I was really good at that. People would look around, you know, thirty minutes left, they got thirty questions to go. So I I, I was good at regimenting and 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 performing on that exam. I always said I performed probably better than my knowledge, certainly in the early years, because I was organized and and I had an academic inclination. But it's it's a hard exam, and um, I won't tell you otherwise. And uh, but you know, if you're going to officiate at the highest level, and um, I was lucky enough to do that, you know, you you better have some governing entity that tests one's abilities. And the USJ was good at that. And everybody used our exam. The PJ Tour used it. The PJ of America, the LPJ, you know, the USJ was the governing body, obviously, in the rules. And so all those rules, seminars, exams, and and the the uh, achievement to try to score high in that exam to be invited to these events or work for the PJ tour was, was overseen by the USGA. So, and, and as a rules official, um, you've worked obviously the U S opens over the years. Um, anything stand out to you as far as a controversy that you may have had when a player asked for a ruling or you had to step in and assert yourself and, and overrule a player. You so, know? You know, I did a lot of speaking in my career. And early in my career, I did a lot of rules instruction. Was taught at the PGA, USGA Rules, National Workshops. Did that for several years. Of course, taught around here and building the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association. Gave rules seminars in St. Louis. Did them at the club level. Did them metropolitan-wide. And then did them nationally. And then did a lot of speaking on my road to, you know, four years of the championship committee. This was a day that, you know, you, you sweated out Thursday at the U.S. Open if you were a championship chair. I had four of those because, you know, the responsibility was yours. And did you, did you get it or did you blink? Uh, but I can tell you the, um, you know, the, uh, the, the effort that, that went into that and um, would uh, uh, cause you to carry on. And, 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 and when I had these opportunities to speak, that was a focus that people had. They wanted to ask two questions in my rules involvement. And then later as I went on and, and did my board service and president, two questions. One, tell us about some interesting ruling uh, or your, your most controversial ruling. And the second question, what's your favorite golf course? So those are the two mm-hmm. questions that I got asked. Believe it or not, and my wife, Julie, who Mark, you know well, says that I didn't memorialize this journey very well. And one of the things I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't log in rulings I made, you know, just not, not good at that. Probably didn't take a lot of pictures. I mean, we have stuff, but so I, I don't have, I, I had a ruling with tiger at the masters that was reasonably controversial, not because of the, the determination or, or what was, uh, the ruling that was delivered, but it was because he was the number one player in the world Sure, and it was the masters. And, uh, he had, he had snap hooked a ball playing 17 over into the seventh hole, which runs parallel. And he wanted to play to the 17th green. And there's a monster board behind the seventh green, you know, a leaderboard that had all the names and hole by holes. And he wanted to play through that monster board. Well, the rules in those days on temporary removal instructions for championships was that it had to be on your direct line of play. And Tiger said, well, I'm going to hit a cut. I'm going to hit a cut. And so that's in my way to cut. And the rules didn't provide relief there. And I said, Tiger, I'm sorry, but no relief. And, you know, it. Wow, you shut down Tiger Woods. Yeah, shut down Tiger Woods. Like so that's an interesting point. So that's why I want to break that down because so, I'm curious during the Let report. me leave this one sure. point. Very respectful. Tiger, you know, I, yeah. I could have a lot of comments about him, but he was never disrespectful to authority or, you know, his dad didn't implement that. He's right. a little rude to people at times, but he didn't, He didn't. you know, I've had Bubba Watson curse me and, and uh, uh, you know, other players, but you know, Tiger was didn't like the ruling, but he accepted it. So if he were to do what he suggested and and get relief without asking you, then would you have to assert yourself at well, that sure, point? Sure, but then he then, yeah. he then he took he availed himself under a rule that uh, was not applicable. Okay, so anytime so there's he, anything, he'd get a general penalty there. Yeah, so that'd been a two stroke penalty, which in those. You know, this is Sunday at the Masters, so it would have been pretty significant. Phew, really? So players are, I mean, if there's any question, they're going to ask for a ruling, oh, yeah. and then that that is binding. If, they, if, they, if whoever the official well, says the, yeah, you the can rules do that. Are, it, you, can, you can ask, or the official can bring in another opinion, or the player can ask for another opinion, but the referee's determination is final. Okay. This is like, It's almost yeah. like a lawyer, right? Yeah. Like, is that an administrative <laughs> ruling that's subject to review? No, I, I never did say that's final. I was I welcomed the other ruling because if you were wrong, the last thing you wanted to do. Now, I knew I wasn't wrong in that instance, but 
I, I always was. Tiger would like to, and you know, I knew Tiger since he was thirteen. Tiger knew I knew the rules. Sure. So yeah. he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna try to show me up, uh, and bring somebody else in. Let me ask you, man. I, I just thinking all this stuff. I was thinking these caddies in today's modern golf game. What kind of money are they making at a level of a Masters or an Open? Yeah. Something like well, that? most of those. Uh, I can't say guys because there's been some women along yeah. the way. So most of those caddies would be – everybody's got a little peculiar different deal with their player. But they, they get some kind of per diem smash. Uh -huh. And whether that's weekly or daily. Uh, and, and then, you know, th there may be a travel component. And, you uh -huh. know, these guys flying net jets nowadays. And now with COVID, it, with the tour the tour is flying everybody around and quarantined. But, you know, many times, you know, Steve Williams flew with Tiger. Sure. So that would be a might be a benefit based on who your player is. Right. -oh. But they they likely got somewhere between seven and ten percent of their earnings. Oh, really? Their winnings. So do the math. Yeah, that's strong. Yeah, those those guys, you know, Lacava, Jimmy Johnson, who's uh, uh, Justin Thomas's caddy. You know, he was Nick Price's caddy. He's been out there a long time. Lacava, who's Tiger's caddy. Uh, Bones, who caddy for Phil. Stevie Williams. I mean, those guys made you know. Stevie Williams was making a half a million dollars a year. Nice. Well, let me ask you this, man. When you were a caddy, and you <laughs> would give the guy you're caddying for a tip, like play the ball a little to the right, and it'll. But when he hits it, it goes to the left. How do you, uh, shall we say, assuage the situation when you have made a bad call for a guy who believed in you, and then all of a sudden you let him well, down? Well. Uh, a little bit like the practice of law, right, Mark? You're you're hedging if you don't know. <laughs> if you if you know it goes left, then be firm about it. But if you're not quite sure, then you probably want to hedge a little. I probably did a lot of hedging. <laughs> I probably did a lot of hedging. This I was is kidding. Tom O'Toole joined us here, uh, the Mark Milton Show with the Smash, uh, broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios. We're going to take a break. Uh, if you can stick around, I want to talk about sure. your law practice and sort of how that's evolved, uh, and, and also get into some details on some of the events that you were you know, not only the uh, chair of the championship committee, but then as president of the USJ. This is the Mark Milton Show with the Smash. Again, broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios. Be sure to check them out. You know, they have two locations, Belleville, Lake St. Louis. Uh, it's a great opportunity for you guys to go out and get new furniture. You know, you're spending a lot of time at home. You may be unhappy with your current setup. Go out, check them out. They've got a flex deal gallery. Uh, you can customize anything you want in the way of living room furniture. Dining room furniture, all Amish-made, U.S. products, uh, and also anything you need for the bedroom set. So please be sure to check them out. That's Miller Furniture, M-U-E-L-L-E-R, Furniture.com. Are you currently sideways with the IRS? Do you have years of unfiled tax returns keeping you up at night? Are you facing tax liens, bank levies, or wage garnishments? If so, you should contact former Department of Justice Tax Division attorney Mark Milton at stltaxlawyer.com. Mark Milton provides a local and holistic approach to tax resolution. Don't be sucked into the out-of-town tax resolution groups you hear on the TV and radio. Mark lives and works right here in the Kirkwood area. If you have IRS problems, visit stltaxlawyer.com today. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision. It should not be based solely on advertisements. We now continue with more of the Mark Milton Show with the Smash on 590 The Fan and 590TheFan.com. All right, welcome back to the Mark Milton Show with the Smash, broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios and presented by STLTaxLawyer.com. We're still joined by Tom O'Toole. Former president of the USGA, uh, really public service, uh, you know, extraordinary. When we look at his history and career uh, in golf and, and all he's done. But I want to take a minute, Tom, to talk about your law practice. Because I think sometimes people just view you as, you know, former USGA president. But you really have an extraordinary career as an attorney. Uh, you've built quite a law firm. Um, I know you said earlier, you know, you graduated from law school because you wanted to be a politician. But you've since gotten into... You know, real estate, land use development, uh, those areas of law, and also built really a, a multifaceted law firm. So tell us about kind of where you started from the law practice and where you guys are now. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I, yeah, I, you know, you're right. I think I got labeled as a golf guy, and many times people said, well, I, he doesn't really practice law. The irony is the entire time I did the golf, my golf run, and even when I was running the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association. When I started it in 1991 and was its original executive director probably for, you know, 
I don't know, eight or nine or ten years probably, maybe more. I gotta stop and think. Uh, I was practicing law concurrently with that, and generally uh, by myself in the golf association offices. I had a, I was partners with Jim Cullen, who just passed away, and Bob Spaulding. Jim Cullen was a prominent St. Louis lawyer, was the mm-hmm. general counsel of the National Hockey League, and I, I was a partner of his later in life and uh, later in his life and career in a law firm Spaulding and Cullen, but. Um, I went to Chesterfield, uh, and when I left Clayton, I was working with Scott Rosenblum and his uncle, Howard Whitner, mm-hmm. Steve Hereford. We were in a firm, Man Poger, Whitner, and Hereford. And I left Clayton and went to Chesterfield at the request of Tom Sainert, who owns the Smokehouse Market and Annie Guns, saying, you know, come to Chesterfield. I got a lot of business for you, uh, and let's get the Golf Association there, and let's have all this together. And I did that for several years. And then finally, as my practice grew to some degree, mostly in real estate and land use, my dad was a prominent real estate appraiser and was probably the most recognized condemnation or eminent domain valuator in St. Louis. So I ended up getting a lot of condemnation business as a young lawyer. So I was just practicing in those areas and running the golf association. Tom Sainert said, look, you need to merger practice in with a bigger firm because you need to use your golf contacts contacts to cross develop business in areas that you don't practice. So he really paved the way and talked me to going into a firm Doster Mickus, which was in Chesterfield, just west of Annie Guns on, on Airport Road in the bank building there. And when I joined that firm in two thousand and six, probably late two thousand six, I was the fiftieth lawyer in that firm. And so then I got a taste of working in a larger law firm, not like a downtown law firm and ones that you worked in like Hush, but, you know, a good-sized law firm. That firm, uh, I was out um, having prostate cancer surgery in late 07, and the firm imploded and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. Different lawyers went different ways. And after the first of the late in that year, Tom Mickus, who was the, probably the largest breadwinner in that firm, asked me to go join and, and start the firm, which was in those days, Mickus Goldman O'Toole. And uh, so we went to Maryville there. And, and, and then that's about the time I started my rise up the USJ board. So I'm ever indebted to Tom that, number one, he saw the merit of bringing me into the firm. Two, supporting my USJ run because you really, this is really a job for somebody who's either independently wealthy or who doesn't work. Um, I was one of the few people that did it while I was practicing law. I can't say full time because I was traveling 250 days a year, but uh, I was lucky to get to do it. Lucky to have Tom Mickus's support. And then since that time, I when I retired in 2016, I've really come back and tried to use my energies to grow the law firm. And we've had some nice lateral moves and um, and brought some lawyers in from Lewis Rice. And um, and now we, uh, I think we not only are um, ranked in our medium sized law firms in St. Louis, and we're also the uh, um, the largest minority-owned firm because I own a, a large share of the firm, but it's not 51%. And my two partners, three partners, own uh, 51%. And those those two partners are two of them are African American, one of them are women. When are you going to put your logo on the side of your vehicle, though? When does that happen? When are you <laughs> yeah. going to put the make? make you know, I drove. I, you know, funny thing, I drove a a car that had the Metropolitan Golf Association logo on it at a time when I was single and much less uh, concerned about what people thought about my personal life or uh, social behavioral patterns. Um, so I did that at a time that I was probably most exposed. So I think it's better that I just stand on the radar now, even though my, uh, I'm, uh, I'm much more in a straight and narrow because, as you know, Julie keeps me on that way. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I saw was that your firm for 2021 is like, they're amongst the top law firms in the country, man. Congratulations on that. Well, yeah, I, you know, I can't take all the credit. I got great partners. We have great employees. You got you a know, bunch of them too, man. Yeah, and you know, we look at it more from a family perspective. It's a, it's a family and uh, and a team, and uh, so we uh, hopefully this. You know, it's been a tough period we've lived through here with COVID. Yeah, and we, you know, our employees have been fabulous. Even though they're working from home, they're still productive. We're still billing time because, as we say in a law practice, we don't have anything on the shelves up here. It's just time. We're just right. filling time. That's right. So, um, 
we've had a really committed and dedicated group, and we've been lucky. But um, I hope this looks better on the other side of it. We can get back to really working at development work, and and maybe we ought to start doing a little advertising on the on the radio. Maybe there you that, go. That, that might that might impact us in a positive way. Would you say, from your perspective as an attorney, that when this COVID thing is "quote unquote" done, whatever "done" is Whenever defined is, as, right? do you see a predominance of lawsuits coming out of the public to whoever the government, the hospitals, well, to you'd, whoever? You'd certainly think that could be the, the, you know, in the litigious society we live in. I yeah. hope our uh, wisdom in Congress comes through with some kind of immunity or some kind of. Uh, um, indemnity the people that were just trying to make a living out here now and dealing with something where we didn't have a playbook, right? Nobody had a playbook in this matter, in this pandemic. So I I hope to God, but you know, we'll have the, the uh, plaintiff's bar uh, pouncing on uh, no deference to all of our friends in the plaintiff's (laughs) bar, but we'll have them pouncing on it in some regard. But I I hope that our lawmakers can try to get this thing in a corral, that this yeah. doesn't turn this into just an opportunity instead of people trying to right. save lives and, and and make payrolls and put food on the table. Well, and, and I think in other areas like business interruption insurance has been a lot of talk about that. You know, a lot of these yeah. insurance companies aren't covering claims from restaurant owners and things like that who have had to basically shut down for months on end and i actually another advantage to me losing my uh run for state rep was i didn't get to, i didn't lose all my plaintiff's lawyer friends because as a republican <laughs> i would have been part of tort reform efforts and i right. caught a lot of heat over that during the campaign so um, that. well i i applaud you know your your success not only as a lawyer but really i consider you a public servant what you've done with the usga you know with the um, uh, metropolitan uh, amateur golf association um but let's talk about your run as as an executive within the USGA starting, I guess, you know, you were a member of the executive committee and then you became the chair of the championship committee. Talk about, you know, those roles and, and you know, some of the highlights there. Sure. You know, when I, I had had this substantial rules background and, of course, um, we all have a greater opinion of ourselves, whether we articulate it publicly or not, but we all have a greater opinion of ourselves than than is reality. So when I got on the USJ board, I thought it was a dead cinch that I would chair our rules committee because I had experience and, and, uh, and, and frankly, intellectual knowledge is com- compared to most. But uh, I also had this life where I ran golf tournaments. I started this golf association. I ran, you know, by the time I got on the USJ board, I'd run over 150 USJ qualifyings. I ran Metropolitan Championships. You know, I ran the men's division two championship for the NCAA for nine years. I mean, I spent a lifetime running golf tournaments. So I had this unique kind of tournament or championship experience or expertise. And I had this rules guy named Jim Heiler, who was a USJ president and was a championship chair. When I got onto the USJ board now is the competitions chairman at Augusta national for the masters. He came to me and said, look, I, I think you think I'm going to make you the rules chairman. I'm not. I'm going to make you the championship chair. And I'm also going to give you this responsibility for it normally was a two-year assignment. I got it for four. Um, now, the, his successor had to give me that same assignment, and, and he did. But uh, that gave me an opportunity to uh, use the experience and knowledge I had in running golf tournaments at the highest level, and it was a – you know, it was a, a really a, a cherished part of my USJ run, and I'm uh, lucky to get to do all of it. And so that's that's how that happened, and uh, and uh, so I did that for for four years. And what does the championship committee do? I mean, they're just in well, charge of running the U.S. Open, essentially. Yeah, well, you're you know with the staff, you know, right, you're sure. full time staff. You're charged with uh, two things: site selection of our championships, and then the conduct. And so. Um, you know, when the rubber meets the road, the chairman of the championship committee is the guy that's in the is in the media tent in the, or the media building, um, listening to the media say if there was if there was a, a screw up. So when I was the chair of the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in 2010, which was my first year to chair, Tiger Woods came in from playing his first round and went to the the flash um, uh, media tent afterwards and said, "These are the worst." freaking greens I've ever seen in U.S. Open. And, you know, here's the um, – so I, the, right away the media's called me, where's O'Toole? Get him down here to the to the media center. So I went in the media center, and you hear Mr. Woods' comments. And 
And I said, uh, I, I did hear him. I didn't hear him live, but I, I heard him on tape. And, uh, and what is your comment? And I said, well, um, if I was the world's number one, I don't think I would have come into a resort that has been a substantial partner to the PJ Tour where he makes his livelihood and criticize their putting greens. That's you, me. As you said that? Nice. I said, I think Tiger's... I think Tiger's indictment of Pebble Beach and his putting greens are misplaced. Ooh. And everybody in the world knows that Pebble Beach has Puana putting greens and they can, they're seaside, yeah. they're seaside golf putting greens and they have the proclivity of being bumpy at times during the day, depending on their growth. Got up and walked out. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so I had that background and, and, uh, um, of, running championship golf and, and hopefully uh, through my legal practice, being on the hot seat from time to time. But and, Tom, uh, Tom, did, I, did, I enjoyed that part of it. Did Tiger come back at no, you no, after he that? Well, he wasn't there yeah. to set the record straight. He, You know, they wouldn't bring it in. It wouldn't be a, a Q&A or, yeah. or he said, she said. Yeah. So, um, no. Um, but, you know, Tiger, uh, I had interaction with Tiger later, and he said, you know, it was a little frustration. I, you know. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said it. What, what, they don't ever say they're sorry, but yeah, they, right. they, they try to mask why they did it. And, sure. Uh, so what's the, uh, Brandon, uh, Shambly story. <clears throat> you, you, you mentioned that to me. Yeah. The same U S open, uh, there was some criticism about, um, the golf course. And then there was another hot item, whether or not VJ Singh should have gotten a, an exemption. We gave him a special exemption. And so when I came to the set of Golf Channel, uh, I, you know, our communications team would tell you, well, here's what you're going to talk about, so you're prepared. And then whenever I got into that seat, didn't do it with you guys this morning because I trust you, but I'd say, you know, what, what are we talking about here today? And, uh, and, and then if I said, look, I, I don't want to – let's not talk about Pebble Beach's putty greens. It, you, know, it, it, you know, we don't own this golf course. We're sure. here for a week. and. So, of course, we get into it, and Brandel's got to hit me with the putting green question. <laughs> so, um, anyway, we had a nice uh, heated exchange as we went off the air, not live. And uh, it, it, uh, it lingered with us for a while. I saw, him at a, I saw him at the Seminole Pro Member cocktail party last winter, and he says, uh, Tom, how you doing? You still mad at me? And I said, yeah, Brandel, I, mad is not the emotion that I would describe it, but... He's um, just an instigator. He's like yeah, Woody Woodpecker. No, this guy, a, you don't know. Smash this guy is on the golf channel. He just oh, really? likes. He's a he's criticized recently. He's gotten into it with loves to stir the pot. Brooks yeah. Kepka and others. Let yeah. me ask you this. So you may not know this about me, Tom, but I'm like kind of an autograph hound. All right, it's embarrassing for everyone who's Didn't around me. Yeah, oh, look at his office. So as a guy who's been around these guys, I mean, you pretty much can't really ask for autographs. I mean, am I right? I mean, you probably don't, aren't able to accumulate. Yeah, that would be part items. of the <laughs> lack of memorialization. <laughs> that that I would not look good on top. So I got a story. <laughs> trying so, to get autographs great, from all the golfers. Great story. 2011 U.S. Open. So I'm living in D.C. at the time. My dad flies out for for the U.S. Open at Congressional. It was awesome. It was Father's Day week. You know, yep. it was a great experience. So my my thing is when I go to a golf tournament, I like to go to practice rounds and I get the flag and I get whoever I'm able to get. Yeah. And then after the event, I frame it. So I did it like 05, Bell Reeve, U.S. Senior Open. Um, it's on the wall. AT&T National on DC, PGA here. I did it, all right? 25-year-old man, a lawyer working for the Department of Justice, getting autographs. Yeah. Not ashamed to admit it. Yeah. But I typically am pretty passive about it. So these guys will come along the line. Generally, I'm a six foot four individual standing amongst children. Again, not ashamed. I just hold it out and they yeah. sign it as they go down the line. <clears throat> so we're at the practice. Do you range. get the cardboard underneath oh, yeah. it? So yeah. What is this amateur hour? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't early on, but the I learned. Sharpie. Yeah, the you, Sharpie. You, you kind of your I own use, Sharpie. Yeah, my own yeah. Sharpie. Um, you use binder clips, put it on there, nice, so it's real easy to sign. Most of these guys use their own Sharpie though. Right. Oh, you yeah. gotta have one, and even they don't. Exactly. So we're standing at the practice range, at Congressional, which is a great setup. They got a huge grandstand behind the the practice range, so you can sit up there and watch guys hit, which I love to do because these guys, the way they can shape their shots and all that. But I'm down there on the line where the players come in and off the practice range, usually to go to and from the first tee or whatever. Um, and so uh, Graham McDowell has, has entered the uh, practice range earlier earlier in the day. This is at Congressional. At Congressional. He's defending coming off, champion. Defending champion. So he's the hot autograph of this year. So all the kids are like, Graham, Graham, will you sign Graham? And he's like, no, no, I got to practice. I got to catch my tee time. So um, on his way off, he's again is, is walking towards the first tee. All the kids are screaming, Graham, Graham, will you sign my flag? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, uh, after the round, after the round. 
All of a sudden, he turns around as he's walking, makes a direct line straight to me as I still have it standing there, and signs it. And I kind of give the, you know, throw my my, my dad's <laughs> up in the bleachers. I kind of give him the fist bump, like, oh, dad. And I'm like, wait a second. What just happened here? Yeah. I think he thought I was special because <laughs> I'm a, this big guy standing there with the, the clipped on flag. So I think he saw me. He's like, oh, I'm going to give this guy an autograph. And I literally just like sunk my head and just walked away. I mean, that was, it was humiliating. That's um, good. But I got Graham McDonald and I got Rory McElroy on the yeah. flag. Nice. He won by eight strokes, I think, that year. Was my son, Zach, did a better job with that. He got... The glove McElroy won with there at Congressional. Oh, nice. wow. Nice. And here's a better story. The next year at, at uh, Olympic, uh, 2012, I'm the championship chair again. I take Zach down in the locker room with me to clean my locker out. We're going to Pebble Beach the next day. Julie, Zach, and I. Julie was pregnant with Bella. but We had the same circumstances that you and Marie had, but was pregnant at that time. And so I said, Zach, come on down to the locker room and help me clean my locker. I'd been there for two weeks. Got two lockers. I got rain gear, dirty boots, clothes piled up in there. Pardon my French. <laughs> and uh, I go down to the locker room, and Webb Simpson and Dowd, his wife, are down there with the trophy. Wow. And so, uh, so Zach's dad, dad, Webb Simpson. So I know Webb since he's in college. So I we called him Webby. I said, uh, he goes, Dad, can you get a pick? Can you get a pick? So I go, Webby, uh, hey, Mr. O'Toole, you know, I said, how about a picture with you and my son, Zach, and the U.S. Open trophy? Absolutely. Get in here, Zach. Come on over here and take the picture. And so we clean the locker out. We're walking. The, the, if you've been to Olympic Club, the locker room's in the basement, you know, all beautiful but it's downstairs so i'm walking up the steps and i've made arrangements for our ops guys to come with a cart so they can take my dad who's at this point not moving very well and died he lived for another three or four years but take him by cart to his car with my mom as we're coming up the steps i'm i've already radioed the ops guys to meet me there to get my dad zach looks at the phone and i botched the picture oh <laughs> And he starts to cry and taking uh, a picture. And I go, Zach, I don't know. You can't even take a picture, Dad. You had the Web Simpson. So my wife, Julie, I said, Julie, look, Webb and Dowd are gonna be coming up. They're you know, I saw the their courtesy car in the front, they got a circle drive in front of Olympic Clubhouse. I said, get get another picture with with Webb and Zach. We ain't, I, I gotta get dad to the parking lot. So I take off. So uh, up comes Webb and his lovely wife, Dowd, carrying the U.S. Open trophy, and Zach's there, and Julie goes, Webb, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm Julie O'Toole, Tommy's wife, and, oh, oh hi, Julie, how you doing? And Zach, yeah, we saw <laughs> Zach. Well, Tommy balled the picture up. <laughs> can you get another picture? With Can we take? Absolutely. Come over here, Zach. And Julie gets a couple pictures. Webb goes to the trunk of his car and uh, starts to put his clubs and takes his golf shoes off. And he turns back around and goes, hey, Zach, come here. Puts the shoes on the back of the car goes, do you want these? These are the shoes he won the U.S. Open. Nice. Holy cow. Nice. And then he goes, hold on a second. And he takes both. They're, they're a pair of white foot joys. Brand new. He only wore them that week. Sure. Signs Webb Simpson on the top of the two toes and gives them to to, nice. uh, to nice. Zach. Nice. So there's your autograph seeking. So uh, and he's I got a great signature yeah, too. And he's I, got a little W. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. He's a, so I come back from taking my dad to the to the parking lot, and Zach's jumping around. Okay. I go, "Did you get the freaking picture?" I didn't. And Jules goes, "Not we get the picture. He gave his <laughs> shoes." Wow. So wow. Zach ended good. up. The two years, I ended up with Rory's glove when he wanted congressional, and he ended up with Webb's shoes. Wow. They're still sitting in his uh, closet upstairs on Marland. Unbelievable. Let me ask you, man, just the way we play golf on a uh, proletariat basis, do those guys ever get in, like, big-time uh, altercations and or brawls or fights or anything well, behind the scenes? Yeah, not, I, I wouldn't say it goes to blows, but there's some words, and yeah. you know, there's— uh, 
you know, if guys are doing something, they're, you know, uh, moving one another, players playing or not being respectful yeah. of, of whose who's turn it is to play and, yeah. you know, the the province of that. But, yeah, there's there's been some. You can't live out there on a tour and not have with personalities and have everybody get along sure. like it's Camelot, right? Yeah, right. So, up. yeah, there's – but they're, they're uh, pretty respectful. But, you know, in this day and age, which has always been a gripe of the Ryder Cup, our tour is a bunch of – a bunch of silos. Everybody uh, kind of goes their own ways. Now, some of these younger guys, Justin Thomas and Jordan, those guys that played junior golf together, they've been a, a tighter group. But you know, historically, everybody. Well, I feel like geographically, way. they send it, they seem to have all gravitated to like you know South Florida, Jupiter area, which is kind of cool. Yeah. These guys hang out in the off season and they're able to play year round there and yeah. avoid income tax, state yeah. income tax nah, on anything right. they're earning down there, which is an interesting topic, maybe for another day. But I'm always fascinated by golfers because. You know, these events, I do think about it because it's like, man, hosting events in Florida makes a lot more sense to attracting top talent because they don't pay tax on their winnings versus when they go play in Connecticut or California. These guys have to pay tax to those states on those earnings. Right, but the lion's share of the year, it's really not good for it's too hot. And so they Florida? Yeah. Well, Texas but, is another one where they but, can play. you know, play they have them. the Florida the swing in the, in the winter when the weather's good. Do you think that's motivated at all by taxes or do they think about that? <laughs> no, I think that's a geographic thing. I, I think back when they started it, they, they probably had income tax in Florida. Maybe I mean, back did. when Nicholas was playing there, I don't think he moved to Florida because they don't pay have, have uh, state income It's tax. certainly an incentive though these days for a lot of these yeah. guys. Well, versus a guy them. like well, Mickelson, where'd he finally go? Moved to Florida. Yeah, You're right. He was in California. California Texas. Yeah, crazy. Do you think that uh, with a preponderance of great golfers out there now that we'll ever see a standout like a Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Tiger Woods, guys who really stand out like that? Well, the parody's there right now. Yeah. Um, so uh, probably not. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to, I don't think Woods is going to get Nicholas's record and he had the best run to do it. Yeah. Um, so I don't smash. I would say no. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some great players because of the parody. Everybody, it's so hard, hard to, to keep it going. Like you yeah. guys had, you had get, you know, Jordan Spieth had that run where he looked unstoppable right, and right. he's kind of falling back a little bit. Brooks yeah. Koepka obviously with his success. Yeah. Um, but there's what I like about golf right now is that there is so much competition. I mean, mm -hmm. there are, you know, 10, 12 guys every week that like the leaderboard um, yeah. at the recent tour championship was just a lot of fun to watch. We got Tom O'Toole here in the studio. This is the Mark Milton Show. If we could, when we come back, I want to talk about the the uh, Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association sure. and all the work you guys have done with that. This is the Mark Milton Show with the Smash Broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios. Are you currently sideways with the IRS? Do you have years of unfiled tax returns keeping you up at night? Are you facing tax liens, bank levies, or wage garnishments? If so, you should contact former Department of Justice Tax Division Attorney Mark Milton at stltaxlawyer.com. Mark Milton provides a local and holistic approach to tax resolution. Don't be sucked into the out-of-town tax resolution groups you hear on the TV and radio. Mark lives and works right here in the Kirkwood area. If you have IRS problems, visit stltaxlawyer.com today. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision. It should not be based solely on advertisements. We now continue with more of The Mark Milton Show with The Smash on 590 The Fan and 590thefan.com. All right, welcome back to the Mark Millen Show with the Smash, broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios and presented by stltaxlawyer.com. Smash, if you got any plumbing needs, we got a new sponsor, Bright House Plumbing. Nice. If your sump pump's backed up, if your toilet's yeah. clogged, make sure you check we out. need an elbow joint. <laughs> if you need an elbow, elbow joint. Not at all, man. We, uh, Nick, you know, your nickname was the pipe layer, right? That was your uh, nickname that we came up with, uh, the pipe I was fitter. a plumber as a, as a young <laughs> man. like that. My dad owned a plumbing company, and he would send me into the crawl spaces with the cockroaches, yeah. And the rats and the snakes. It was a beautiful well, life. You don't yeah. have to do that. You can call Bright House. They can take care of all your plumbing needs. They also do power washing, junk removal. They can really do it all. So check them out. It's brighthouseco.com. We are still joined by Tom O'Toole, former USGA president, uh, founding partner of Mikas O'Toole Law Firm here in St. Louis. Tom, I want to talk about the, the work you guys have done with the nonprofit, the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association. You started this uh, in the early 90s. Um, tell us about its mission and, and what you guys have done with it. Well, you know, uh, just the the model in this country is to have amateur golf associations, not-for-profits, that um, try to service and provide amateur golf services to clubs and members. And those associations get their authority or licensing, so to speak. Uh, it's through a different agreement now, but for the sake of ease, it's a licensing arrangement with USGA. So, mm. uh 
here in St. Louis, we didn't have a lot of organized golf when I first got involved. And I was on the board of the Missouri Golf Association, was lucky to do that. And we tried to convince that board to move the offices to St. Louis because there was a, it was ripe for cultivation of, of selling handicap and service clubs because the St. Louis District Golf Association, the old association here, was a private club association only. So we couldn't get the services into public clubs. And anyway, the Missouri Golf Association didn't want to move their offices here for, you know, a lot of reasons. The association was run predominantly by um, folks from outside of St. Louis. You can't say outstate because they used to say, we're not out of the state, we're in the state. Well, why would you say outstate? But, you know, in mid-Missouri. And, um, and the St. Louis District didn't want to expand their charter to include public facilities. And I got... You know, I, when I caddied for Holtgrieve when he won these St. Louis districts, the public people couldn't play in that event. It was always a mind scratcher to me. So I had started the Metropolitan Golf Championship, which was the first to bring public and private together in 1990 or 91. And then off the genesis of that, uh, myself and Jim Holtgrieve and Mike Corey and others started the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association. And then, you know, just tried to... Uh, service clubs here and do a good job with that. And then, you know, bring a tournament schedule and do it as well. That's where I track my gin is yeah, through uh, the sell the, handicap and do all the course ratings. So there's a continuity between, you know, somebody who's a member with a handicap at Bell Reeve, which is a difficult course versus, uh, you know, open flats country club. So uh, anyway, just a, a true golf association and it's grown over the years and, you know, moved into mid Missouri and by agreement geographically with the Missouri golf association. And then, you know, into central Illinois early on, and now all all of southern Illinois. We took that era over a few years ago. So um, it's operated by Kurt Roy, and um, you still have an executive board and some other staff, and we have a big internship program. So and is it as, is it runs a C three? So contributions are no, no, it it's as... not a C. We have a foundation that's a C three, but okay. it's a uh, uh, actually the the Metropolitan Amateur Golf Association is a C seven. Okay. And where and people, but people can contribute to the foundation if they want to yeah. help with educational and, 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 activities. Yeah, well, that's a predominantly missions is for junior golf. So our Normandy Golf Club uh, endeavor there is under that umbrella, along with Beyond Housing, the not for profit that's done a lot of work in the twenty four one footprint there in the North County. And so we're trying to uh, that that's all. Those are both five hundred one c three entities. So contributions to them are, as you know. Or if, if our listeners don't know, they can call you for the advice. There you go, Tom. Uh, there you go. Uh, are tax deductible. And, and where would they find more information if they wanted to contribute? Uh, they could go on our website at METGA, like Matt Golf Association, METGA.org. All right. Excellent. Matthew, man, when you're playing, what kind of clubs do you use and what do you like about them? You know, Smash, I, whatever I'm using right now, which is Titleist, I need to get new ones because I need to hit them farther because I'm, I'm my I'm, my length is uh is waning um as I said frequently the only person you're not ticked off that's hitting it by is your kid and uh Zach's been hitting it by me for a long time he's an accomplished player and PJ's about ready to be hitting it by me so I need some new clubs that can hit it longer but I've played Titleist for a long time and yeah. you know there's so many good you know, Callaway's good. TaylorMade's good. There's there's a lot of great manufacturers on the market. So PJ's getting into it because I've got Freddie who's a five year old, and I get, I get frustrated because I try to take him to the range, and he's just not really that into it yeah. yet. So well, hopefully... their attention spans don't. And Zach was like that too. You got to give him in little doses. Yeah, that's what little I've been doses. trying to do. We go up there, we'll hit a couple, and then he wants to like he wants to like sledgehammer it. You know, he doesn't understand yeah. that. I'm trying to get the sweeping motion, but anyway, but we only have a few minutes left. I want you to kind of you know take this opportunity, reflect on. Your career, you know, around the game of golf, you're still a young man, obviously, but, I mean, what has it all meant to you? To young be able to... children. I don't know how young I am, but <laughs> young children. What Julie it all says mean? that keeps me young. <laughs> Look, you know, uh, again, as I said earlier, and thanks for having me, Smash and, and Mark. You guys are doing a great job and got a nice following, and it's obviously helping your practice, and that's good. Uh, you know, I didn't have a roadmap here. This wasn't a contemplated path. I reacted as I did my whole life to a lot of things, academically, professionally, personally. Uh, but I, I ended up where I did. And, um, and you know, probably uh, my mother used to say that I, I got involved in golf and it operated to my personal and financial detriment. Personally, she meant that I never got married until I was a little older in life, as you know, Mark. And uh, is Billy Payne, the chairman of Augusta National Golf Club, once told me, 
Um, did he ask me if I knew anything about football? I said, yeah. No. He says, do you know the vernacular? And I said, yeah, I, well, pretty much. I played it in high school. He said, well, let me share one with you. You outkicked your coverage. <laughs> I said, well, referencing my wife, Julie. And I said, I well, lot, well, well, Mr. <laughs> Chairman, I'll take that as a compliment. But, uh, you know, I didn't have this path. But, you know, if you look back and reflect, um, would you have done things differently? Yeah, probably. Hindsight's twenty twenty. But, you know, I... Uh, you know, to be involved in governing a game that I started a love affair with as a young kid, that, that's a that's a treasure, and you can't uh, that that's a privilege of a lifetime. I, I closed my USGA uh, service in my final outgoing speech and told a story that Sandy Tatum, who's probably arguably one of the most accomplished USGA presidents, he made his mark because he was the chair of the championship committee at the massacre at Wingfoot in 1974 and then later went on and became USGA president. But he was an NCAA champion at Stanford, accomplished San Francisco lawyer, and and had big identity. He once told me that the most significant event in his adult life was becoming president of the USGA. Now, this was an accomplished guy, but won the NCAA golf title. And was an accomplished lawyer. And so I closed my USGA journey by saying, if Sandy Tatum said that it was the most significant event in his adult life to become president of the USGA, and I believe it was to him, then what would you possibly think it meant to a kid from South St. Louis? Yeah. So, I, you know, nice. I was lucky to get to do all of it. It was a nice. privilege of a lifetime, and uh, I'm sure I stubbed my toe frequently along the way but uh well we're proud of you i think it's awesome that you're from st louis and that you've had this run because i I do think uh you've done a lot for st louis i know you've had an influence on bringing events here as well so uh thank you for that thank you for being here uh this is for having me yeah this is the mark milton show with the smash i do want to give a shout out to a couple of our other sponsors kevin wingenbach state farm you can find him at socoinsurance.com for all of your insurance need auto home life check him out again at socoinsurance.com Kevin Wingenbach. And also to our other sponsor, Ravensburg Incorporated. If you need a movable wall system, Tom, maybe you want to divide some rooms in your house, be sure to check out Ravensburg.com <laughs> for movable wall systems and any kind of commercial interior build out you might need. This is the Mark Milton Show with the Smash. You can find us at 590, 590thefan.com, and the Mark Milton Show.com.